Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern-day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Hi, it's Don Johnson again with the Proclaim and Defend podcast. In this episode, we are bringing one of the messages from our recent annual meeting held at Faith Baptist Bible College and Seminary in Ankeny, Iowa. You can find audio for all the messages at fbfiannualfellowship.org. Just look under the Media tab. There you will see messages for 2023 and for 2022 as well. We also plan to release the messages and workshops in the podcast format over the next several weeks. So you can have a choice. You can go to the website and get them all and uh, for a binge listening episode, or you can take it in uh, smaller bites over the summer through your podcast feed. It's up to you. The conference was a special blessing to us all. I hope you enjoy the messages and make plans to attend our 2024 meeting in Denver. Now for today's featured message. It is a joy to be here with you and um, Noah. I forgot to bring a handout for myself. <laughs> Could you? Anybody else need a handout? It's a welfare society. Everybody wants a handout. Is there anybody? Anybody who needs a handout? You'll, you'll need to have that. Um, we have a lot of material to cover. Uh, you may feel like you're taking a drink from a fire hydrant. I don't know if you've ever done that, but it'll blow your lips off. It is... It is not pleasant, and I hope this is a little more pleasant than that. Um, but the theme this, of this conference on evangelism and discipleship is so desperately needed. And I am so great, grateful for uh, Kevin and Jim and their leadership in this. And uh, it's, a, it's a delight uh, to be here with you over this, um, this week. Well, I want to jump right in, and the text, I thought Kevin was going to cover it last night. He started 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5, and then he went back to 3 and started, and I thought, oh my word, he's going to take my text. But um, I guess we can all preach our own text. Um, but Timothy, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy here, and and Timothy is embedded in a stream of discipling relationships. And he, uh, he says, uh, but continue, Paul tells him after listing all the problems of the day, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been, has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> and Paul said, your, your mother and grandmother taught you, they discipled you. I taught you as my son in the faith. And earlier, chapter 2 of that same book, he says, I want you to transmit these to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Paul was really committed to this discipleship, this one-on-one kind of relationship. And I want to explore that this morning. Um, The definition I've given to discipleship and change into his image is, Biblical discipleship is not primarily a program. It is a certain kind of relationship between two believers with a very specific spiritual goal in mind. Now, those two believers with that goal in mind may use somebody's program, but it it is discipleship is helping another believer make biblical change toward Christ-likeness, helping others in the sanctification process. I really want to stress with us that this discipleship process, it, there is Bible content. We, we speak with, uh, we, we work with men and women uh, who are struggling with addiction. We run about a hundred every Friday night in our uh, addiction ministry, Freedom at Last at Faith Baptist Church. And, and some of them, as they come to Christ, they, they have, they're unchurched. They don't know Genesis from revolutions. You know, they, they don't know where anything is in the Bible. And sitting next to them in church and you see them struggling and, and just helping them find in the Bible where, where this is. And, um, but there's, there's change involved. And if the Bible is not about change, I don't know what it's about. 
It's about men and women coming to Christ in salvation and that grand narrative of of the scriptures, that redemptive narrative. But then, then men and women need to be discipled into the likeness and the usefulness of Jesus Christ. It is the spiritual parenting Paul spoke of in Galatians 4.19 when he addressed the members of the church as my little children of whom I travail in birth until Christ be formed in you. And I'll tell you, you get up, you get right real close to men and women, especially those who have had a real, real difficult past. And you travail. It is, as Kevin, it is work. And you'll work with somebody a couple of years and then something significant will happen in their lives and, and uh, they'll disappear for a little bit and, uh, but they'll come back. And you continue to work with them. So what is sanctification? This isn't, uh, this isn't new with me. I have no idea who, uh, made this up at the beginning. I've added the last phrase, but sanctification is that process of change whereby the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make us like the Son of God. And I've added amidst the circumstances we face in the providence of God. Sanctification happens in the milieu of life, on the on the day-to-day interaction with people who are struggling. So I want to I want to move to the the next two verses and the last two or the two that we're going to focus on. <clears throat> All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And I want to look at those, as someone has said, again, I don't know who the author is of this, but when Paul teaches doctrine, he's teaching, he's saying the Bible teaches us what is right. Reproof is the Bible tells us what is wrong. Correction is... Uh, the Bible tells us how to make it right, and instruction in righteousness or training in righteousness is the Bible teaches us how to keep it right. And the Bible must be used for all four of those functions, and I'll unpack that in, in just a little bit. But I want to overlay another passage at the end of the Sermon on the Mount uh, where Jesus said, when he finishes, I know Jesus was a Baptist because he gave an invitation at the end of this sermon. So he says, whoso, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man that built his house upon a rock. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded on a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and great was the fall of it. This is one of the first passages that our men and women in freedom at last memorize in, in the curriculum. We can, and, and so I've, I've said there are just two paths before our eyes. The way of the fool and the way of the wise. And we have to hear God's words and do them. And, and I want to just point out that we have a lot of men and women in our church who are hearing God's word, but they are not doing them. And when you get, when you get across the table with them in their, in their dining room or in your office and you find out they haven't read the Bible for a long time, these are people that have been in our church for a long time. They haven't been reading the Bible. It's been years since they've, since they have, um, uh, memorized any scripture. When they have a fight, profanity is not off the table. And they are not doing the words of God that we are teaching to them throughout the week or in, in, when we preach. So I want to lay over these two. So the first two, doctrine and reproof, are the Bible is telling us what to believe and where we're not, uh, where we're wrong about what we believe. But correction and instruction or training in righteousness is the Bible is teaching us how to do these things. And men and women, we cannot pat ourselves on the back that we're doing the full work of the ministry if we are merely teaching people doctrine and reproving them where they're wrong. 
But if we're not helping them, I mean from the pulpit, if we're not helping them apply that, then we're not using the word, we're using the word of God for only half of its purposes. And if I lay Matthew 7, 24 to 27 over that, um, the hearing and doing, the first part is the hearing. This is the Bible knowledge. And the doing is the wisdom. Wisdom is skill in living life. And you work with men and women who are coming out of addiction or um, un- unchurched as they, as somebody leads them to Christ and they come to your church. They, they have every, every, back up a little bit, every bit of counseling or discipleship is cross-cultural. Every person I talk to, I'm counseling cross-culturally. I have not lived in their home. I've not been in their environment. I haven't been listening to the values and the standards of their home. And I'm coming from a totally different planet. I was discipling a guy, the first one I was, the first addict I was working with, um, wonderful black fellow, 38 years old, and I was meeting with him in the afternoons when he got off work and discipling him and <clears throat> and I came over one day and he was just agitated and he was just pacing the floor and, and I said, Terrence, what is going on? He said, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to Charleston and I'm taking my buddy Smith and Wesson with me and I'm going to show that drug dealer that was shooting at my brother when he was buying drugs what is, he needs to know what it's like to get shot at. And I said, Terrence, do you think that's what Jesus would do? And he said, no. Talk to me about what I should do. <laughs> you know? I mean, this is cross-culture. That, that's, that's not the mindset that I work with. But it's his. And if I'm going to help him, I have to know where he is. And what he, and, and if we're going to help our kids, we got to know where they are. I had a dad say one time, I'll never understand my kid. He never listens to me. I said, you're right. But, but I said, you don't understand your kid by him listening to you. You understand your kid when you listen to him. We have to do a lot of listening. So let's take apart those two last functions of the word. The correction, making it right. Uh, the word means to straighten up again or to restore or to write, like writing a canoe. I don't know if you've ever swamped a canoe, but getting it upright again while you're in the water is quite a feat. And that's what this word is. I mean, it's putting things back together as best you can to where they were before the canoe tipped over. You'll probably still have a good bit of water in the bottom, but at least you'll be able to get somewhere with it. But that's so many people, even in our in our churches, that are regular tenders in our churches. The problems they're struggling with at home, and and when we hear them, it's it's easy to say, well, ma'am, you just need to be submissive to your husband, or you need to love your wife as Christ loves the church, and and all of that is true, and that's doctrine, and that's reproof. But how do you help somebody who's, who's been embedded in that kind of problem for a long time? How do we help them put this back where it's supposed to be? And then instruct them in righteousness so they can keep that right. One of the passages I use when I, I teach this in, um, uh, at the seminary, is Proverbs 28:13 where where Solomon says he that covereth his sin shall not prosper but whoso confesseth and forsaketh shall have mercy and I I wed that with Ephesians 4:22 that you put off concerning the former lifestyle conversation the ways of the old man which is corrupt according to its deceitful lusts and and from that you'll see in your notes kind of a breakdown I'm not going to cover all the definitions that are there, but we're, we're helping people learn how to confess sin. And we can do that from the pulpit. 
We need to be instructing them. I, 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 in my own preaching, I, I spend 50% of the time on the first two functions, the, the correction, the doctrine and reproof, and the other 50% of my preparation is on the application and the illustration of that. I'll never forget reading somewhere, Dr. Bernhouse said, and this appealed to me as a farm boy from South Dakota. He said, um, you've got to get, the, he said, preachers, you've got to get the hay down out of the loft and under the ground floor where the cows can eat it. There's a, there's, that's a lot of wisdom. And we, and we must labor to do that. That's as much work as exegeting the text to find out how I can, how will this help change my people, and what will that change look like if they're actually doing this? Um, and then there is forsaking sin. I don't know where that's coming from. Uh, I thought maybe it was my phone up here, but it's not. Um, I'm just going to... So forsaking sin, this is all part of correction. Um Forsaking sin is restitution, paying back what I gained by deceit. I came to Bob Jones in rebellion my freshman year. I, I came there because, I, and I was I was away from God my last year of high school. I was in a public school and started running with the wrong crowd. On, on many weekends, I didn't come home, and I was getting into a lot of trouble. I won't rehearse here. But I came to Bob Jones because my Christian parents... Uh, we're constantly praying for me and, you know, I called it harassing me. But in a weak moment, I promised him I would go to a Christian college for a year. And I was too proud to go back on my promise. And so I, when I graduated from high school, I went to Bob Jones to do my one-year time in that maximum security facility with, with the idea that when I was paroled, I was going to go home and pick up what I, where I left off. And God got a hold of my heart. My freshman year. Chapel and my Bible classes and my roommate really had an impact. I remember one evening standing on that bridge of nations thinking, Jim Berg and Bob Jones, those names don't even belong in the same sentence. And then God, he just turned my heart around. And I devoured this book. I memorized while I was in college hundreds of Bible verses because my mind was so filled with pornography and rock music. I was a hippie wannabe in the 60s when I was in high school, started a rock group, and my mind was all over the place. And God changed me by his spirit using this book. And I did a lot of stealing. And part of the correction was making restitution. And I took an eight and a half by 11 pad of paper and filled three pages of money I had to pay back and people I had to get right with. And I remember standing in the Bob Jones bookstore my freshman year after stealing in high school and thinking, well, this is a piece of cake in here, you know. <laughs> and then I thought, no, I can't do that. Because if I ever get right with God again, i got to come back and face Mr. Annan and make restitution. And I've already done that with a whole bunch of folks, and I don't ever want to do that again. And when I came to Bob Jones, I was too weak not to steal because of principle. You know what kept me from stealing? The shame of having to make some correction. And standing in that bookstore thinking, I don't want to do this. Because I know what it's going to mean if I get right with God again. You you shortchange the correction process in this, and people will be right back where they are, where they were. We have to help people with the correction, the restitution, and the reconciliation, and the restructuring of their lives, removing the triggers to sin, and setting accountability in place. And I want I want you to turn to the last. Uh, uh, pages, uh, page three, four, and five. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but this is a worksheet that I use with um, addiction strugglers who've really hurt a lot of people and with husbands who've been really oppressive 
and in, in some cases domestic violence, and we've had them removed from the house while we counsel them and while my wife counsels a wife. And this is a process I work through with them. Number one, um, make a thorough list of your sins against God and against others. Pay special attention to accusations that they have made against you. Because what happens, you confront a guy and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I shouldn't be doing that. Uh, I, but I told my wife I'm sorry, and she doesn't trust me. Well, forgiveness and trust are two entirely different things. And the way he asked forgiveness, a flippant way he asked forgiveness, doesn't d- demonstrate any sincerity. Now, I know according to Luke 17 that if it comes seven times 70, you still forgive. But but this guy is not believable. So you make a list. Pay attention to the accusations that they have made against you. These often reveal areas where they believe you have wronged them. List also sins God is convicting you about as you sincerely ask him to do a thorough house, house cleaning in your heart. And I tell them, maintain a running list and categorize the offenses under broader headings. I did, my, my freshman year when I was doing that, I, you know, I got those three pages done. I'm, I'm writing. There was no email and no uh, phone calls were $3.50 for three minutes. So you, you don't do phone calls. This is back. The earth had just dried out after the flood. It was a long time ago. And I, I, I was getting through my list and I'm crossing these off as I make things right and write letters to my school that I stole from and businesses in town and friends and, and I get close to the end and, you know, I'm thinking, oh great. And, and then, and then God keeps convicting me about more things. And you keep adding to the list. He says as, he says as you bear fruit, I'm going to purge you to bear more fruit. And you can expect that to be an ongoing process. And he's saying, this is really good, Jim, but there's more fruit I want. And you keep working through the list. And you prepare the people you work with. Say, this is not the end. You get this list done. There's going to be more if you're sensitive to God now as you walk with him. Maintain a running list and categorize the offenses under broader headings like sins of the tongue. This is for husbands primarily. Sins of lording it over others. Sins of dishonesty. Sins of slander and gossip. Sins of anger. Sins of discontent and complaining. Sins of neglect of God and his word. Continue to add to the list. God convicts you further or as others bring up additional wrongs you've committed against them. Make these lists detailed and explicit. You sinned against God and others with specific details. Confess means to state your offense in terms the wrong one would agree with, that the wronged one would agree with. You know, if Jim and I, uh, I really appreciated the friendship with Jim. Let's say we got into a, a real disagreement, and I hauled off and smacked him in the nose and broke his nose and gave him a bloody nose. And I come, I feel really badly about that the next day, so I come to Jim and I say, Jim, you know, God has really convicted me that there have been times in our relationship when I haven't been as loving toward you as I should have been. How do you think that's going to go off? Not loving, you're brutal! Confession means you state your offense in terms they would agree with. Number two, find scripture passages that show that your sin against others was more importantly a sin against God because you violated His word. And you can look through the details of that. I want them going to their Bibles. And if they're not familiar much with the Bible, then this is where you sit with them and you work through this. Number three, consider and be able to describe the hurt that you cause God and others by your offense. Hurt is what others remember more than anything else about your offenses. Even if you don't know the exact nature of the hurt, you might show that you have thought about the possibilities. You must show that you've thought about the possibilities of what they must have felt and must have thought when you sinned against them. Otherwise, they will have a hard time believing your sincerity when you ask forgiveness. My my wife has been rear-ended in a car three times over the course of the, of the years by a teenage a teenage girl texting or doing, you know, distracted in some way. And the last one, uh, a couple of years ago, 
Patty stopped at a stoplight. This 16-year-old teenage girl who just got in, just got her driver's license that week, plows into the back of her, and um, uh, and you know she's she's crying her you know first week and she's driving and my dad's going to kill me and all this kind of thing. What she has no idea about is what she caused us to go through. With the months of physical therapy, all of the work with the insurance agencies, and and uh, and and getting a new car, and working all of that out, and then going down to the DMV and getting all of that transferred, this little gal has no clue what she caused. Now I'm not; she hasn't been on the planet long enough to really understand that. But I'm saying a lot of sins in personal relationships, particularly in marriage, when a husband comes up and he says, "You know, honey, that you know I shouldn't have lost my temper." I'm sorry. He has no clue what damage he has done in the way he has treated her. And this point in it helps him consider what hurt you brought to these people and your kids. And the, the next one, number four, is similar. List the possible spiritual battles you made others face because you are not walking with God yourself. There are little kids who fight spiritual battles of bitterness and anger and fear because dad is being oppressive. And there are wives who fight those same kind of battles and struggle with God about, I know you want me in this marriage. (laughs) And I thought you led me to this guy and I'm committed to... But she's fighting a battle every day. And he has no clue what he's causing. I want him to think through that. What battles do your wife and your kids, what battles have they had to fight because you were acting in the flesh and serving yourself? Number five, express godly sorrow to God over your sin and its effects upon him. Be prepared to describe your grief at the hurt you've caused others and grieve at the spiritual battles you caused others to face. Then repent of these matters before God. Number seven, worship God and praise him for his loving kindness and tender mercies. And then eight, this is the culmination of it. Write out exactly what you're going to say to the one you offended and check it with your counselor before you seek forgiveness. Wrongly handled, these confessions can bring more offense into the relationship. When writing out your confession, state the offense. I was wrong when I did this. Write out the passages you violated. God has shown me that this. Write out your understanding of the hurt you caused them. I'm quite sure that my sin made you to feel this way. In your understanding of the possible spiritual battles you triggered the other person, it's very likely when I sinned against you, you were tempted to and your grief over and express your grief over what you did to the person and then ask forgiveness for the offense. Will you forgive me? In two situations where we use this with the men and and uh, um and we arranged a time when Patty and I would meet with this couple in both cases when the guy read this and says, will you forgive me? Those wives almost jumped into their laps because they thought, they get it. They get it. And having thought through all of that, it's going to be a little harder for him to do it again. Now, men and women, that is using the Scriptures for correction. How do we clear the rubble so that we can start building training in righteousness on top of that? And as the note says on page 5, not, not every offense against another needs this level of engagement. However, when the offenses are long-standing, the hurt's deep, and the chasm between the two parties is great, this kind of thoughtfulness often needs to go into the confession, forgiveness, reconciliation dynamic if real progress is to be made. So, if we're preaching about God's the necessity of God's word, or some some maybe we're in in Second Timothy like uh, uh, Kevin was last night, and 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 we're preaching about what God says here to preach the word and so forth. There are many men and women in our congregation who are not touching the word, and if they are, it's not very deeply. They're reading a page out of our daily crumb and going on. And that's about it. And I'm not saying a granola bar is a bad thing, but you can't thrive on a granola bar a day. So in our preaching, we would say, so I'm, I'm, I'm just, I just want to help you think through this. What? You might be under conviction. You've been reproved by the word tonight. 
So I want to help you think through that. What What is keeping you from God's Word? Is it fatigue in the morning? You can't get up. I mean, you, you get up and you're double parked in the twilight zone and no matter how much coffee you drink, you just can't, you can't seem to get with it and you can't have your devotions. Well, let's, let's talk about when, when are you going to bed at night? And what are you watching before you go to bed at night? How much guilt is that bringing or how much adrenaline is that raising in your system that keeps you from sleeping well at night? Is it guilt and shame before God about your sin that keeps you from this? <clears throat> well, please come and talk to me <clears throat> because I want to I want to help you work through that. I want you to enjoy God's word and what he has to say to you, his child. Please come and talk to me about that. I, I want to be able to help you with that. Is it forgetfulness? Well, I, you know, I get up in the morning and things just happen and I just forget about it. Well, let's let's set an alarm clock and let's do some other things to remind us of what we need to do. Um, is there no desire to pursue God in the first place? Well, we can stand there and say, well, you know, brother, you better check. You may not even be a believer. They, they may not. But men and women, we don't drive people to God. We entice them to God. I've got a shepherd. Because of him, I don't want. And the more I know this shepherd, the more I know he'll walk through with me in the valley of the shadow of death. He knows how to restore my soul. I, I want you to know this shepherd well. And if your guilt and shame is standing between you and this shepherd, please let me help you with that. What about too many interruptions? I think the hardest job in the world is, is motherhood. And single motherhood is harder than anything. So when does a mom with preschoolers and, and an infant that she's nursing several times, when does she have her devotions? And this means talking to the dads and saying, let's, let's, I know you want to come home and crash after a hard day. Your wife's had a hard day at work too. So why don't you take those kids at, um, and, uh, for about an hour and let her go spend some time with her Bible. No systematic way to go about reading and studying the Bible. Is that what's keeping you from that? Well, come and talk to me. Let, let, let's, let's figure out a way to make that happen. No sense that I need this every day? Well, well let's talk to that about you're, you're probably eating a lot of junk food if you don't have any appetite at the meal. So what we do, we help connect with people and say, there, there's a way to correct this. Let me help you with that. Back in March, April 2021, <clears throat> Frontline did um, an, an issue on the authority and sufficiency of the Bible. And I was asked to do an article uh, in that, and I want to read portions of that. Are we sufficiently using the, script, the sufficient scriptures? Someone has said that the fact that the scriptures are sufficient does not mean that the counselor or pastor is competent. And I'm going to skip down for an application. Do we sufficiently use the scriptures to address failures in male leadership in the home? This is a real burden. I see this all over. I can't tell you how many times as dean of students, girls and, and guys, women and men would come and say, I wish my dad was more engaged in my life. So we preach the correct doctrine about the duties of husbands from Ephesians 5, 23 to, at 25 to 33 and Colossians 3, 9, 19, which require them to foster the spiritual growth of their wives and not be bitter against them. And we reprove behavior that deviates from biblical standards. But do we use the word from our pulpits and in private conversations for correction? Often our preaching does not illustrate what truth looks like when it is applied. And you got to remember, I've got, you, you know, in a, in a congregation, we've got singles. We've got widows and widowers, and we've got young moms and dads. And, and we, part of the preparation is thinking through, how does what I'm preaching connect to those people? Do we, by pulpit illustration of biblical precepts and private application, teach failing husbands whose consciences are dulled by repeated sin, how to see their faults. 
Do we show them how to biblically confess their sins to God and their spouses and families? That's what that handout is. Do we teach them to address not only the issues of the conflict in their relationships, the outward wars and fightings of James 4.1, but also the inordinate desires for respect, unquestioned obedience, autonomy, control, that war in their members inside their own hearts. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own strong desires and lied to. Do we teach them the repentance component of correction? I've just said this. Correction means as much as possible to help them put things back to where they were before they sinned against their families. Do we show them what it means to repent, to turn away from sin so obvious to others, and how to turn in faith and obedience to the biblical standard with God's help? Do we teach them steps of reconciliation to repair relationships they damaged by their demanding and self-centered ways? Do we teach them the patience of rebuilding trust with their wives? who have lost all hope that their husbands would ever change and who are afraid to hope again because their husbands husbands may revert to the old hurtful ways. Do we teach them how to get back uh, back under their own authorities? A lot of these dads, they're in rebellion to their own authorities at work and to church authorities. Do we teach them how to address the pride that is driven their self-centered desires and demands? Do we teach them how a believer develops a humility of Christ who is willing to sacrifice himself for the betterment of others? Rarely will men make lasting change without someone exposing these issues and then skillfully leading them to make biblical correction to restore what is lost. Correction, however, is only clearing the rubble from ground zero, the site of the devastation. We must also give them instruction in righteousness. Instruction is paideia, training, it's it's child training. It's instruction that gets the job done. They must be equipped with a biblical plan for walking in righteous ways. They must be prepared for facing their temptations to be harsh and demanding or to escape responsibilities by burying themselves in their own interests. They must be taught how to cultivate a vibrant relationship with God as they open their Bibles every day. By the way, when talking about being in the Word and you're talking with somebody and they say, just, I just don't have time for that. And I say, how much time are you watching television? How much time are you, you, you spending on video games? It is amazing how many men are obsessing on video games and sports. And, other, and I'm not saying that those things are taboo in, entirely, but not in the dose that they're taking them. They must be taught how to meditate upon the scriptures to be transformed by the renewing of their minds so that works of the flesh are replaced with fruit of the spirit. Vices must be confessed and forsaken before virtues, the marks of Christ's likeness, will ever flourish. They must be taught to become men who, uh, whom their wives and families can truly respect, who can bring hope, who can become hope givers in their homes and who can deal with problems and pressures biblically. In short, <clears throat> training and right living involves walking these men through the sanctification process in order to transform their desires, emotions, thought processes, and choices. All of this and more is included in instruction and righteousness. And like any form of parenting, this takes much time and commitment on the part of both the disciple-maker and the disciple, with the awareness that the process can be sabotaged by the lack of follow-through by either party. They can, their own hearts, desires, and Lack of discipline can sabotage that. Our lack of discipline in following them up can sabotage that. Do we sufficiently use the scriptures to address other problems our people face? Is the Bible sufficient to actually address the heartaches and motivations of a young woman who is depressed because of her abortion? Or do we just use the Bible to show her that abortion is murder, but God forgives people who sin? That's doctrine and reproof. Do we know how to help her respond biblically while sitting in a Mother's Day service? Do you have any idea what somebody who's committed an abortion feels like on Mother's Day? Some don't even come to church on Mother's Day. It's too painful. Are we even aware that women in our congregation have a hard time with this day because of barrenness and miscarriages or abortions? 
Is the Bible sufficient to actually address the root heart issues of a homosexual who has just come to Christ? Or do we merely use the scriptures to declare that heterosexual sex within marriage is the only biblical moral position and use the Bible to condemn any other behavior outside that standard? Do we actually believe and prove by our practice that the scripture is enough to help him become thoroughly furnished unto all good works? Did you know God can do that? Every converted transvestite. So when it, when somebody does get saved and they've gone through transitions, and they want to know how do I how do I become the man God made me to be instead of the woman that I've made myself into? I say, well, that's that's really deep for us. There's there's some real practical things we can do. Every converted transvestite, every post-abortive woman, every rebellious, pot-smoking Christian teen, even despairing, every despairing housewife, every substance abuser, and every angry, porn-addicted husband can be thoroughly furnished unto all good works through the sufficient scriptures if we will know it well and use it in all four of its God-intended functions. The question before us again is, are we truly sufficiently ministering the sufficient scriptures? Some might call these skills biblical counseling, but men and women, they're simply the skills of wise ministry. Every Bible institute, Christian university, and seminary must equip its students to minister at this level of application. Such instruction cannot be relegated to only the biblical counseling classes. Wherever the sufficient word is taught, the minister in training must be sufficiently equipped through that word to help people change and grow to foster his own and foster his own transformation into Christ's likeness. Lastly, this is, just, this is speak I, not the Lord. Lastly, every ordination council should require the prospective candidate to clearly articulate the details of the process of sanctification to give testimony of how God is using that process to help him overcome sin in his own life and to require him to walk through case studies like those above in detail explaining how he intends to sufficiently minister the sufficient scriptures. Every member of the church, man, woman, and teen, and child must be taught these truths because the mission of the pastor-teacher is to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. Isn't biblical change into Christ-likeness the heart of the work of ministering, laboring with them until Christ is formed in them? What does equipping the saints mean if it does not mean teaching them how to make biblical change themselves and help them help others make biblical change toward Christ-likeness? The word must be proclaimed, doctrine and reproof, but it must also be applied. That's correction and instruction in righteousness. Without the, and this is a critical point here. Without the latter, our people may affirm our doctrinal statement, but not believe that the scriptures have answers for life's real problems. And note this last statement. In the meantime, the young people around us in our churches who see the rawness and complexity of life today become convinced that the church has no answers and they look elsewhere for solutions. We must sufficiently minister the sufficient scriptures if we're to make full proof of our ministry and effectively feed the flock of God. Now, I know that's, I know that's a mouthful and that's, and that's not just re- reproof. There is a lot of correction in there. This, and you say, you know, where, where do we start? This is where, this is where there is, there are things we can read. I would commend to you a book I read in 1986, I think, by Jay Adams called How to Help People Change. And he takes those four functions of the word, doctrine, reproof, instruction, uh, correction, instruction, righteousness, and shows you how to use that in preaching and personal ministry. How to Help People Change by Jay Adams. Phenomenal book. Mine, mine, the, the, I picked it up yesterday or earlier this week and the back section of the book fell out. I've used it so much. It helps us think how to drill down and truly help people. So teaching how to keep it right. Just a review here. This is parenting that gets the job done. With instruction, discipline, and accountability, it's habituation. Getting up in the morning and opening your Bible must become a lifestyle habit for us. Not using profanity must be a lifestyle habit. 
saying you love your wife must become a lifestyle habit. Now, you know, you say, well, you know, but, you know, that's just behavioral psychology. It's not. It's habituation. God made us to be creatures of habit. It's a wonderful thing. You, you think about the feasts in the, uh, of the Old Testament and all the sacrifices. You imagine what a, a teen Hebrew would, he'd come to his dad and say, Dad, these sacrifices are so boring. I mean, every day we get up and we bring the lamb and we cut its throat and we take that blood and the priest sprinkles on the altar and we do that every day. Dad, that is so boring. Why can't we just change this a little bit? Why can't we have some variety in this? And you know, God didn't change that for thousands of years until Jesus. You know what God said? I'm not going to change that, but you need to get your heart in it. The habits were right, but they were only helpful if the heart was in it. And I can come up to, I can come up to my, my study in the morning and open my Bible and my heart's cold as a rock. It's not thinking about God. And I've got to spend some time getting my heart into this. And sometimes that means pulling down a hymnal and singing, search me, O God, and try me. Or blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Just to help me start focusing. This is what I'm here for. And we teach people how to get their heart into habits they need to develop. We call them the disciplines of the Christian life. Memorizing scripture and reading scripture and and witnessing and meditating and, and journaling. All of these kinds of things that will help them grow. And that we must be sharing from our own life what this is. now, and, and particularly when we get older, like some of us are, we're prone to tell stories because we've got a lot of life to review, you know. You use stories only when it's strategic in getting your point across. Let me show you something here about keeping it right. For example, in Romans 6. Let not sin therefore reign. That's a present active imperative. It's an active verb. Therefore let not sin, uh, let not sin therefore keep on reigning in your mortal body that you should keep on obeying it in the lust thereof. Neither keep on yielding your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but keep on yielding yourselves unto God and so forth. There is present action going on there. So how do we help our people keep on with these things? Part of it is reminding them and illustrating for them. Same thing in 1 Timothy 4.7. Keep on exercising or training yourself rather unto godliness. This I say, keep on walking in the spirit and that you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So Paul is saying to us, all of these actions of transformation and sanctification in Romans 6, 7, and 8, and Colossians 3, and Ephesians 4, and James 1, these are in the active, these are active verbs. We keep, we help people keep on doing this. It's part of our use of the Word of God. Someone has to come alongside struggling believers and stay with them until their manner of life is characterized by continuing action in righteousness. They are not letting sin reign. They are not obeying sin's passions. They are presenting their members to God. They are training themselves for godliness. They are walking in the Spirit. And sometimes we have to use... Um, Little things to help them with that. I, uh, with, with the folks we work with in addiction, I, I, I tell them, you know, when, when you're in elementary school and your clothes catch on fire, they, they teach you to stop, drop, and roll, and they have little jingles to teach that. And I say, there is an emergency procedure when you're tempted and when you're tried, and that is bow, trust, and obey. Bow, trust, and obey. You bow in repentance if you blew it. You bow in submission to what God has ordained and allowed you to be in right now. And you bow in submission to His ways. And then you trust what He has said about how He's going to help you. But you've got to have verses memorized for that. And then you obey what He has said. It's bow, trust, and obey. I have them work out bow, trust, and obey uh, scripts. 
Because we all have these mental scripts when we're tempted, don't we? We just go through this again and again. She can't get away with that. She does that all the time. She did that this time. And we got this little mental script going. We got to replace those mental scripts. That's what meditation does. In Ephesians 4, it includes renewing our minds, reading and studying the scriptures to make God's thoughts and ways ours, memorizing scriptures so that we can use our personal sword for battle, to battle personal sinful desires, placing ourselves under sound preaching that teaches, reproves, corrects, and instructs in righteousness, cultivating fellowship with growing believers who will help us and influence us toward godliness. So how long do we do that? Paul says, you putting on the ways of the new man until the liar becomes a truth teller. Until the angry person becomes a peacemaker. Until the thief becomes a worker and a giver. Until the destructive talker must build up, uh, starts building up with his tongue. According to Paul, that's when our job is done. How long? My little children of whom I travail in birth until Christ be formed in you. And how many? Say, boy, I can't do that with very many people. Well, Jesus' model to the, teach both knowledge and application to the crowds, those we preach to, the twelve, those individuals we lead, staff, deacons, wife and children, and the three, one-on-one discipleship with a few. And I'm, I just encourage you, it's best if one or two of these are teachable, are teachable and new, previously unchurched converts. Because that will teach you what people don't know that they need to know. We have the curse of knowledge. We assume people know what we know, and they don't know what we know. And working with a new convert who is open with you will give you a whole lot of input about what the rest of your congregation needs, but they just won't ask. So let me wrap this up with some shameless promotion to help you with that. I would encourage you to pick up this uh, philosophy of biblical counseling at the exhibit, the BJU Seminary exhibit, and um, consider pursuing a grad certificate in biblical counseling. If you have a if you have an undergraduate degree, you can get this 18-hour biblical counseling certificate, 18 credit hours of counseling courses, fully accredited grad certificate that flows directly into an MA in biblical counseling. The MA can become the core of an MDiv, and the MDiv presents you for uh, pre- preps you for an MDiv in biblical counseling. And and there's a coupon if you, if you want information about this, we will give you your first course free, Foundations of Biblical Counseling. And if you don't say, I don't, I, I can't do all that kind of work, um, uh, 18 hours, just sign up for the free course. And it will be tremendous help to you in um, biblical counseling. Ecclesiastes 10.10 says, sharpen your axe. If you find yourself using more force, you probably need to stop and sharpen your axe. You say, well, I'm too old for that. I got my D-men at 63 years old. I became... Certified with ACBC at 65. You say, we can't teach an old dog new tricks. Maybe that's true for dogs, I don't know. But when we have a need to know and a need to better equip our people, we will find the time to do that. If that's what God wants us to do. Equip yourself to equip God's people. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend podcast.